Folks, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Dreams start when you're awake, dancing on a pin with a little baby in your arms as you feel the pulsating rhythms of blues-based music. People talk about blue scales, but it's more about a feel, a time and a place when you find that pocket and lock the groove. My guest today has been locking the groove for the last 50 years. He came of age in New York where he played bass for the Gamblers, who were one of the first groups to play electronic instrumental music. He monkeyed around for a bit and then headed west, where Taj Mahal and Jesse Ed Davis were holding court, putting their own accent on the indigenous rhythms of our country. My guest fell in with the eccentric and generous freeform drummer Paul Lagos. The two of them provided the rhythmic propulsion for so many blues-based albums. Fiddler on the Rock with Sugarcane Harris, Baby Batter with Harvey Mandel, Mudlarkin with Leo Kotke, Breaking Bread with John Mayall and the iconic band Canned Heat, which is coming to the Rialto Theater March 4th. He caught lightning in a bottle, feeding on the non-traditional blues scales. Gone were the 1, 4, and 5, and in its place was a menagerie of fusion. My guests continued to anchor many bands in both a live and studio setting. People like my guest and Paul Lagos didn't consider charts jazz. For them, jazz was the idea of improvising on a theme. Many of my dreams have come to fruition on this journey. At 38 years old, I have interviewed all the heaviest bass players, Chuck Rainey, Wilton Felder, Dave Holland, Leland Sklar, Paul Jackson, Stanley Clark, and George Porter. Today, another dream comes true. Larry Taylor, an honor to welcome you to the Jake Feinberg Show. Is that you live? How you doing, man? Yeah, that's it, man. Oh, without doubt, because like I couldn't hear that as good as I'm hearing your voice now. Well, I mean, I, I did you catch any of it? Yeah, I did. I did. Yeah, you got you got a couple of things wrong at the beginning, but that's okay. But, okay, so let's yeah, let's well let's let's work it out. Tell me what I because this is yeah, all well, just. New, I wasn't in New York with the Gamblers. That was in Southern California, number one. Okay. That was, that was done here in Southern California. The label was. World Pacific, it was Jazz, World Pacific Records, which was a jazz label here in Los Angeles. I don't know if you know that. Of course. Uh, Dick Bach was the owner of the company, and it was done here as a uh, trial to see if they could get from jazz into some of the music. It was, it was actually produced by Nick Finney, and uh, Jimmy Haskell was, an, was the uh, A&R man. Um. It is so great to talk to you, Larry. Um, your bass playing has, uh, I mean, it, it started back um, uh, when my daughter was like, my younger daughter was two years old, um, and I began dancing her to this, this one piece of music, and I, you know, I, I said, this guy's got the deepest groove in the world, and I wanted to ask you something. I read last night that you're very much into bringing the upright bass into the blues setting today, in today's uh, live setting. And I wanted you to talk about why you do that and the significance of the upright bass uh, in, in just in, in music in general. Well, I mean, in, in blues, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's one of the important elements of the older style blues music that was done in the 50s. And uh, that was just something I really liked the music when I listened to that. And uh, so that's why I got into playing it. And then, of course, I played it on all kinds of other uh, people's records and uh, a lot of, you know, earlier blues styles, like, say, with Kim Wilson, for instance, um, and then the many other, you know, local artists around here that play that style. But, and, and also for swing, and it sort of has a jazz side to it, too. And I'm a real big jazz fan, so that's one of the reasons I got into the upright bass. Um, can you go talk specifically about uh, I, I definitely, I mean, I've interviewed a ton of upright bass players. A lot of them were playing uh, with Dizzy Gillespie uh, in the 50s. Um, but, you know, can you talk about, from the blues point of view, from the blues perspective, who was playing upright bass? Like, can you talk about the upright bass in the blues setting? Well, yeah, that's what I was just saying. In, in the blues setting... It was a, it was it, it originally was like a '50s style of uh, blues uh, music that was being played at the time, right? And a lot of swing and a lot of like like on the border of jazz and blues, right? So right. A lot of it, a lot of it was kind of jazz rooted, but 
then you had, like, say, Willie Dixon, for instance, you know, that played all the chess records, you know, all the rock and roll and a lot of blues. And uh, it, it, it sort of has its own little small world because there's not that many people that are into it today as far as that sound. Although it's although I introduced it about uh, in the 70s with Hollywood Facts. And ever since then, there's been all these people picking up on, in fact, that's the instrument that sounds best in certain stylistic forms. So that's kind of like what that's about. Okay, but you are... As far as... Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, as far as, far as uh, you know, where it's gone, it's, it's still, it's always going to be there. It's just, uh, you know, it just, it's sort of... Uh, it's sort of an eclectic thing. Well, I think it's eclectic, but I actually think you're probably a genius. Uh, I've interviewed over 500 cats. Most of the music I listen to is from the late 60s and early 70s. Um, mm-hmm. I think you're nailing this thing. When, so we just dissected the sound of the upright bass. I, I think Richard Evans from Chess Records, Rest in Peace, also fell into that category playing the upright bass. But I wanted you to talk about how the sound changed when it changed and 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 uh yeah please please extrapolate on when you first noticed this change of the blues and jazz going more towards um i hate the word i guess rock or fusion yeah well that that was in the, that was in their in the early 60s uh, you know when it started to get like say uh, say for instance stacks records with you know all the with backing you know, all, all that R&B-ish type stuff, and say the uh, uh, Booker T, the instrumentals, you know, how they use electric bass. Uh, and that was like the beginning, sort of, but that was a little later 60s. It wasn't late 60s, it was like early 60s. But the real, the real I don't know if you know this, but the really first uh, electric bass rock and roll record was an Elvis record. Really? <laughs> really? Yeah, it's uh, called uh, Jailhouse Rock. You know the song Jailhouse Rock? Oh, yeah, big time. Well, well, before that, he was using an upright bass on his early records, and then, of course, they used electric. But the first real rock and roll beat was an electric bass playing against an eighth-note rock and roll beat with a quarter-note bass line. Oh, I love this. So if you, listen, if you listen closely to that record, you'll hear, you know, when it goes into the four chord, you'll hear... Uh, you know, and then you hear the bass playing dong dong, the walking bass against it. So that was really the first rock and roll record with an electric bass playing a rock and roll beat, but still playing a straight ahead quarter note boogie woogie line. Do we know who was playing on that album? You know, I'm not sure the bass player on that. Uh, I think that was Bill Black, actually. Bill he, Black? He played electric. No, maybe not, not on that record, but it's possible that he did play on that record. But yeah, but that was that was that was the change right there. I don't know if you realize. Well, no, I mean, I mean, I was I was not even a, I was an afterthought. I wasn't even conceived at that. This is <laughs> this is so phenomenal to talk to you. Okay, so here's my trivia question for you: Do you know who the first electric bass player to be recorded in a jazz context was? Yeah, yeah, Monk Montgomery. In what record? Oh, there's a bunch of early, I think, late 50s or mid 50s. Or maybe it's like the late 50s, to mid to early 60s. Uh, uh, the Montgomery Brothers. Actually, let me tell you something. 1953 Monk Montgomery Art Farmer record. 19- oh, yeah, that's, that's an early, that's an early, yeah, that's an early uh, Monk Montgomery. But I was thinking about the Montgomery Brothers. But yeah, he did. He did play bass early on, right? That's right. I, I forgot. The master, the master the sounds. Kids. Yeah. No, this is what? this is so phenomenal because, um, although I do like when the electric bass, I like your electric bass playing quite a bit when it was still somewhat of a, a Vogue instrument. Um, uh, I, you know, I wanted to read you. Um, this is coming from an old pal of yours, uh, who, uh, Randy Resnick, who I, I interviewed a couple years ago, and uh, I'm just going to read you this quote. He said, uh, Paul, he's talking about Paul Lagos, introduced me to Don Sugarcane and Larry Taylor, and we did a couple of gigs at the Troubadour. They were pretty well received, and then Larry said, man, this ain't it. This is jazz. J-A-S-S-S. 
okay? He wanted to do something yeah. else, and he left. Now you're you nailed it, Larry. Okay, because when I'm when, the reason I focus in on that time period in music is because it was burning music. I no labels, just it was burning. And then you start to right. talk about you talk about jazz. Now you break that right. down for the audience because this is going to go live um, on worldwide uh, in a couple of weeks. I want you to break down what you meant by that because when he said that, I said I need to find LT. Yeah, you know, that's a kind of a difficult question. I'm not really sure what I was thinking back then. But <laughs> no, you, were, you were really on top Wait a minute, what did I say? I, what did I say? What did you say before? Because like, I couldn't really hear you. Okay, so... Um, I'm having a hard time hearing you on some of this. Well, okay, so we'll, 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 we'll adjust my sound. Um, it's, I'll read it again. It says, Paul Lagos introduced me to Don Sugarcane Harris and Larry Taylor. And this is from Randy Resnick. And he said, and we did a couple of gigs at the Troubadour. They were pretty well received, and then Larry said, "Man, this ain't it. This is jazz." I don't know what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> well, funny, no, but, but you I took just... the you took the Z's off of jazz and made it jazz. Oh, oh yeah, I just uh, used the S's. <laughs> why do you did? Why did, tell me what you were feeling about the, the specifically? You talked about you being a fan of the blues fusing with jazz in the fifties, but why did you make? Because the music to me, when I hear it was turning more towards pacification as opposed to burning. That's just me as a listener. I'm not a musician. So tell me what Wait, you... wait, wait. It was turning more toward, towards what? When you say jazz with two S's, right? Yeah. That tells me that the music was becoming... It was more becoming about pacification, listening as pacification, as opposed to having a visceral experience. It was becoming more Velveeta, more fusiony, not the burning blues quality that you... Oh, oh, I see. I got you. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, well, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's true, but uh, if, if you really want to know what I meant by that, that word, when, you know, with the S's, that was just a slang. <laughs> okay. Because uh, me and me and Paul used to always say to each other, that's jazz. You know? <laughs> I love it. So that's where that came from. I remember, instead of jazz, jazz. So we put the S's on it. So yeah, that's all that was. About. It wasn't really about anything to do with the music, to be honest. Well, what did you mean when you and I mean Lagos was a? I mean, I've interviewed everybody from Jim Keltner to you know, I don't know Larry Taylor. I mean, Lagos was a very opinionated cat. So you guys, right. you guys had some meaning behind that. What did that mean? I mean, when you said that, did you mean it wasn't authentic? It wasn't. What did you mean? Uh. Well, yeah, it, it sort of had it sort of had the feeling of it not being the mainstream uh, music that was being played at the time, and it, so you would put that in a sort of a own category and just call it jazz. <laughs> it kind of sounds funny, but I did. That's kind of like a, it wasn't really something that was really thought of, fairly thought about. It just was a, a sort of a slang. And then we, you know, I think we just thought that the time we were playing, how we were playing, had elements of that music in it, but other kinds of music in it too. You see? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There so was that. That that's more like kind of if I really think about it, that's sort of what we were saying. But if I think about it, yeah, I mean that that's that's pretty pretty. Uh, pretty uh, right on it i think well because because i mean this is a long transcription um and you know i i actually put it into my my monologue intro but he said people like larry and paul didn't consider charts jazz and this is a, this is a huge part of my show as well as a street scholar mentality is for them jazz is the idea of improvising on a theme so I, I, he said Carlos Santana played rock, but he also played jazz. There is a sound of jazz, but then you're getting into what kind of jazz is it? Is it romance? Is it bebop? In my mind, jazz is what I first started listening to, which was Coltrane and Sun Ra. That's Randy Resnick. But I want you to talk about that idea of improvising on a theme. Because nowadays, Larry, you probably run into younger cats. I mean, people are learning music within academia. And I don't. I think that there's... That, that will only stymie the languages of, of music. But I'd like to get your take on 
jazz as a as playing off a theme as opposed to reading charts? Oh yeah, well, jazz jazz off a theme is just uh, you hear the you know you know the tune or you or you make uh, you know, some changes and you you kind of improvise around it. Uh, you play on the spot what you hear according to what everybody else is playing. And the charts, you're reading, I mean, even if it's big band or even if it's jazz big band, most guys are reading notes. So th there's a big difference. It's like, let's say you talk about Coltrane. So you say how Coltrane, you know, was just improvising all the time in his instrument. Uh, it, that's kind of like, you know, how I look at it as, as a, a, a total picture. I look at it like, you know, when you play any kind of music, pretty much, if you're just playing off a feel and the theme, uh, it sort of is kind of a jazz approach, like an improvised jazz approach, which, so Char Charlie Parker, you know, made famous in the 40s. See what I'm saying? Well, I guess to layer on that, my, my theory is that because you guys were on the bandstand six, seven nights a week, uh, you not only became comfortable in your learning your you know, your technical chops, but you also had, um, and you and you woodshed it obviously, but you got a chance to get your get things out of your system on the bandstand, and you were able to develop your own individual sound. Your self consciousness fell away, and therefore you could just swing off a theme. If you don't have that kind of ability to get up on the bandstand, because there's no venues anymore, Larry. So you don't yeah, no, no, I know. That's the difference today. Now everything is, is more automatic. It seems like everything is, you know, coming out of schools, guys learn out of school. I mean, even a lot of these bass players that play real technical today, you know, like um, Victor Wooten and people like that. And if, well, now Jocko, of course, now Jocko is an exception. I think Jocko was, Jocko actually took the bass to some place that no one's ever taken it. But then after that, everybody, you know, was really in on that bandwagon and, and try to use that tech, technique. He used the technique, but he also had the music in his head. A lot of those guys didn't have that music in, from playing gigs. Right, exactly. right, right. You're nailing it. This is why Larry Taylor, I mean, I'll tell you, the, you are like, I have been covered, I've been looking for you for years, years, because I'm telling you, man. You t so for young, but but I mean, let's put this into the real time. For anyone that you mentor or you come across, and you see them just playing notes, and they're hyped, they're not even breathing because they're trying to just play all over and show off their chops. How do you right. how do you get cats in your in your way of mentoring? It, how do you get them to slow down and also understand that the space, the space within the notes, is actually music as well. Yeah, yeah, I hear what you're saying. It's, 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 it's that's a tough, that's a tough thing to relate to people. You know, right. I mean, I, I've had, uh, you know, I've talked to other bass players. You know, that are well, like I was gonna talk to Jimmy Halsip. You know, Jimmy Halsip. You know who he is? I don't know that name. Uh, yeah, he he played bass with the with the uh, uh, for years with a band called the Yellow Jackets. Oh, sure, okay. So he was influenced a lot by Jocko. But if you go hear him play, he still has a sense because he's played a lot of gigs, uh, you know, in, in that in that format we're talking about, like clubs all the time. But I was talking to him one night about just different lines and, you know, learning the lines up just so you have it a, a thing in your head about certain types of songs. Like, say, we were talking about this one called Freedom Jazz Dance, learning it on the bass as versus, uh, you know, uh, and then try to improvise in the tune, which was actually a mobile tune, and he said, it's very difficult. So, <laughs> I, mean, I respect this guy, because this guy actually was a player that, you know, grew up in the 70s playing, you know, gigs. So we were talking about that, and, and but uh, I've I talked to younger guys, and if you get younger guys today that play blues, uh, they don't really know a lot about... Uh, about the the structure that they they sort of play at it but they don't have the they don't have the uh expertise and the chops to do certain things like on the upright like in a blue sense like say the slap technique say for that's one 
and there's like just the lines, the baselines. I mean, you know, they're based off of real simple things, and that's hard sometimes to relay that how simple it really is, and, and they overplay most mostly. I mean, I'm, yeah, no, I mean, uh, okay, but is that is that a can you can you attribute that just to the fact that um, they're not able to 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 work on that in a live setting or, or just get comfortable doing it for weeks? Yeah, a- I think so. I think so. I think so. I think uh, I think that's 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 a good. Uh, I think that's a good uh, way way of looking at it because they didn't really uh, they didn't really get a chance to experience that interplay as much as say the younger players back from the 60s and the 70s and the 50s the the 80s and 90s and now you know it's just it's technique man it's a lot of technique right and technique's more important than say it's just a thing that just a simple baseline can also be technique but it also has a foundation of something that a lot of that other stuff don't have because they, they go too far away from the real groove. Speaking of the real groove, uh, we have a name on this program called, uh, we have a game on this program called Name That Tune. I'm going to play you this tune right now. It's been an inspiration to me and my family, and we'll come back and mm-hmm. break it down, okay? You're going to play me a tune and ask me what it is? Yeah, you just listen and settle in. Okay. All right. I walk the streets and sing the blues every day. on the Jake Feinberg Show, brought to you by the Jewish Community Center of Southern Arizona, the Stereo Hospital, the Circle Tree Ranch, and Abbott Taylor Jewelers. And we appreciate them and their support. All right, Mr. Taylor, what do you got for us, brother? Uh, well, you know, I know it's a harmonica player, but I'm not sure who that is, to be honest with you. Okay, let me, that was Devil's Harmonica, Shaky Jake Harris. from 19- No, I don't know that. That's but you, you know, I can tell I can tell you something about it. Well, hold on. You you know that you play bass. You play bass on that. I did. Larry, I'm not playing random tunes for you. Okay, you're on bass. I, I don't know what the fuck. I don't know. I don't remember even playing that. Okay, who, dude. Who let me let me tell you something, Larry. Larry, that I've been Larry. I, that, that's how much you 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 know people can't quantif- quantify music. It's unquantifiable. 
Your bass playing on that. Yeah, no, so what, so wait a minute, so wait, now, wh- who, what's the guy's name again? Shaky Jake Harris. It was a black... Oh, Shaky Jake. Oh, Shaky yeah, yeah. Jake, John, it was a, Mayhall was on piano, Larry Taylor, I mean, you just, I, I mean, I'm, I, I love doing this for the guys because you're not the first one that I've played a tune for and, and you and you probably haven't even heard it since the session. I found this... Well, I, I haven't, no. I found it on, <laughs> I found it on Polydor Records. I listen to it every day. It is the most. Was that was that uh was that uh was that John Mayall playing piano? You got it. That's right. Mayall was on piano. Yeah, yeah. I remember the session. I remember the session. Then who was playing guitar? Do you remember? Uh, I'll get it to you. I know Ron Selico was on drums. Oh, Ron. Yeah, that that was uh you know who he is. you know who he was right. Uh, I really want to know who I've been. I don't know. Is he still well, around? He played. Yeah. He, he was one of he was one of James Brown's drummers. Okay, because I've I've interviewed Stubblefield and Jabo, but I didn't never I never knew Selico was his was a drummer for James. Yeah, yeah, he he, he was he was one of uh, one of them. I mean, he had a lot of different drummers through different different uh, eras. When he Ron was played with him for I don't know how long, but I did play with him for a while. Now you know, maybe a couple months, two, three, four months, something like that. I'm not really sure, but yeah, he was one of James Brown's drummers, and it's actually if you there's a discography someplace I can't remember where it is, but. It talks about all the James Brown players, I, I, including yes. including want to hear a real want to hear a real uh, a real uh, uh, I don't know if this is interesting to you or not, but this is some information you'll never find. There's a guitar player named uh, shucks, man, what the heck's his name? He uh, Jimmy Nolan. You've heard the name before? I have not. So Jimmy Nolan was a guitarist out of the late 40s, early 50s, and he played blues. It's the most underrated, greatest guitarist, one of the greatest blues guitar players that I've ever heard. And right. Influenced me on guitar, because I play guitar, and influenced me on guitar. And he originally was, he played with a band called the Joe Houston Band, which was a 50s honker, shouter, saxophone player, right? <laughs> right. Now, he, you know, this is a guitar player. Now he played, made his own records, and then he went out later on, and he played with Johnny Otis. You know who Johnny Otis was? Absolutely, Shuggy's father. Yeah, so Johnny Otis made a record called Willie and the Hand John. Did you hear the record? I have not heard that. No, I know this tune, but I never heard the record. Yeah, well, that's that's Jimmy Nolan. And then later on, when when Jimmy Nolan got a little older, he was one of the guitar players on James Brown's records. Yeah, I'm looking this cat up. He was he passed away in '83. He was known for his distinctive chicken scratch lead guitar playing in James Brown's. Well, that was one, right? Yeah. And 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 I, I guess you're also breaking history here. I love creating new history with 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 the cats, but you're telling me that you. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of information on the internet that they don't have. They never knew any about. This. Oh no no no! But I'm saying yeah, the Jake Feinberg show is has bec- I've become relentless with creating new 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 history through my guests but i wanted to i didn't yeah. know, i didn't know you played you played electric guitar did you play that on sessions too no oh, i played on a couple of can eat songs uh but no i actually just playing a lot of guitar now with we're on the road doing doing you know things and i'm playing a lot of different styles of guitar i, I play just all kinds of style I play jazz blues I play a little country. I can play just about anything. Oh, I know you can because you just wait till I drop another piece of information that nobody knows about Larry Taylor. Um, (laughs) So we're cooking. I wanted, but I want to go back to what we were the conversation we were having before, which was uh, this. You you talked about the slap technique and these other things that the the cats, the younger cats, they 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 get near it, but they can't do it. Um, Another component to it was we'll take Shaky Jake Harris. That dude was black a black blues singer with a harmonica. He's talking about the, the messages in the song are the blues. You don't have work. Your mm-hmm. wife's getting on you. How much of it was authenticity? Because it's very hard to play blues if you're growing up in suburbia. Is there, did you, can you talk about some of the the Titans that you uh, played under that inspired you to, because they were, they were channeling their lives. Well, mo- most of what inspired me was records. Was listening to records. That that's 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 where I got my my whole thing from. Was listening to records mm-hmm. in the fifties, and that that that's pretty much you know what what got me interested. And of course, I didn't play. I just played a few chords on the guitar, and then even back in the beginning, I didn't play anything. 
I used to play a broomstick, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I, I, I believe it. I believe it. And pretend, pretend I was playing at my friends. I had friends who even hang out, listen to records, and I used to pretend that I was playing the guitar, and I never played it before. So anyway, that was then, and then later on, I just kept listening and buying these records, and uh, eventually uh, picked up on, uh, you know, the styles of music uh, that are more kind of, I guess you would say that the music that I really uh, listened to was more of underground than they were like pop. Although there was on the fifties, there were some really good records on the radio. You know, say for instance, I would, what comes to mind is seventh son by, uh, Mose Alice. Absolutely. Big hit record. But now there's a jazz feel. And a jazz sound with a vocal that has a jazz sound, but it still has a commerciality. And it was still something, but some of the records they played on the radio back in those days were really good records. I mean, they picked, I mean, people picked up on it. See, that's what I'm saying, because it was so good. So, um, give me that kind oh, of... Oh, no, I, this is... No, so, can you, I mean, uh, I, I was going to ask you, you grew up in New York, though, is that right? Yeah, but I didn't play any music in New York. I, I came out... In I came out to California when I was nine years old, so I, I hadn't done anything in New York. I like the fact that we also share something in common. Uh, we Our parents are both, uh, my dad is Jewish, my mom is Catholic. I noticed that you come from the same. That's the same. Same. So, same I love it. I love it. So, um, but did you, so I here's the question for Larry Taylor. Uh, did you Did you play on the Chitlin circuit, and who gave you, did you play any of the black nightclubs, uh, memory Lane or any of these 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 gut bucket places in Los Angeles? Did you ever back up any of the authentic blues cats? I mean, no. I just... but mostly what I did was play little small local clubs. They weren't black clubs. They were just like little bars, and you know, with different configurations and different you know bands. Uh, they weren't really bands. They were kind of like this drummer and this singer and this guitar player and then <laughs> this drummer and this. You know, drummer on that sang and played drums, and and then you know eventually it kind of you, you got you got it going with uh, maybe like a regular trio. Trio. I was always in the trio instrumental music when I first really started playing at a place on Sunset Boulevard called the Sea Witch. I love it. That would have been about nineteen. The original, the original one. I don't think you've ever ever heard this information. The original uh, time when I first played uh, a bass was that's when I first played the bass and w how that came to be is there was this place on the on sunset called the sea witch and they had uh, uh, you could go there and you could stand outside and they had this little patio thing in the front you could hear the music and that was one thing but then they had on the radio they say if you come up here and we got this mannequin guy that acts like a mannequin if you can make him laugh you know we'll, you can get you, you we'll pay you 25 dollars if you can make him flinch so we went up there me and this friend of mine elliot ingberg who's a musician that i played with back in the, in the in the day there and uh that's what i was introduced to the sea witch so i happened to go in there one night and there was a, this was about not 58 1958 or 59 and I happened to go in there one night uh, just to check the place out because I was just, just of, of age to be able to go in there. You could, you could drink. Uh, you couldn't drink, but you had food, so you could get in. So I went in there, and I saw this bass on this amp leaning on the stage with this guy with long hair from Oklahoma singing and a drummer, a midget drummer, standing on a stool playing the drums, playing the shit out of it. Oh, this is awesome. This is unbelievable. So I saw this bass, and then when the guy came off, I, I asked him, I said, uh, hey, do you mind if I go and just grab that bass and play? I don't, I'm a guitar player, but yeah. I, it looks like you don't have a bass player tonight. So he said, yeah, go ahead. So I, that, that, was, that was it. That was the beginning. And uh, so it was a midget drummer, you on upright, and then there was, it was a guitarist? Or? No, no upright, electric bass. Electric bass. And then what was the third instrument? Guitar. Guitar. So you guys had a trio, and um, would you say that it was, you guys were coming out of the Duke Ellington School of Music in the sense that you were playing no genre, I mean, were you playing, because it was, it was the height of, of West Coast bop at that point, so I know you were. No, 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 we were playing straight, 
Strict early rock and roll rockabilly. I dig. I dig. Strict early rockabilly at the Sea Witch for Larry Taylor. But then... Yeah, that was, uh, you know, that was the beginning. And it was like the, you know, the... Well, you could say, you could call it rockabilly, but it was rock and roll. The guy's name was Wesley Reynolds, and he was from Oklahoma City. And that's that's the guy that I I played with. That was him. And I actually went to Oklahoma and, and with him and did some gigs. Uh, took off from home without a bass because I told my mother, I'm going away. I'm going to go with this guy to play in Oklahoma. And they, they hid my bass. <laughs> so I didn't have a bass because they didn't want me to go. But I still went. We drove all the way to Oklahoma City together with a, a 1956 Pontiac on a rake. You know what a rake is on a car? No. They they lowered the front all the way down and they and they lift up the rear. So back in the 50s, they had these uh, this style of cars that were on rakes, and he had a car that was on a rake, and so all it was was just a jump jumpy ride all the way, like boom 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 all the fucking way. <laughs> how, how did the the base didn't break on the way? I didn't have a I didn't have a base. Oh, so they they hit the base. Are they hit, okay? It was an electric. I keep thinking it was an upright. So it was a, it, but they, but yeah, no, no. So you just I left. You left. Up, yeah. Either. Oh, this is unbelievable. Um, yeah. So we got back to Oklahoma, and I played a few gigs, and then I ended up coming back, and I hitchhiked back. I did a lot of hitchhiking back in the day. Oh sure. Um. Uh, one guy who who's in my soul very deeply um, is Paul Lagos, and I wanted you to talk to the audience. He gets a lot of flack because he was um, he he could be very difficult. From what I've been t- I've been chronicling him a lot on my show, but he was a brilliant player. Still haven't d- totally gotten my ears around his playing sometimes. But I want to talk about how you guys approached music as a rhythm section. And how you expanded the language of music that you played together? You talking about with Paul? Absolutely, Paul. Yeah. Well, you know, with Paul, see, this is the thing about Paul was Paul was was really a, a heavy jazz drummer fan, and he was he was friends of Alvin, you know, Coltrane's drummer, and he was friends with a lot of a lot of people from the forties and the, the late forties, early fifties, older guys, black musicians, and he just was really more engulfed in jazz. He, he wasn't really a rock and roll guy at all. He was more of a hardcore jazz player. And so, you know, I, I, took, I, I took interest in jazz and I just used to go to this house. He had these jam sessions over there. And I used to just go there just to listen. And I didn't, I played a little bass at the time, but, but uh, as far as uh, Paul goes, as far as me playing with him, I didn't really play on that many things with him only till like, uh, a few things with sugarcane, uh, and then I think I don't remember all. Oh yeah, I think we did a. I think I did a part of a record with Richard Green. You know, Richard Green <laughs> no, no, no. Where do you just hold your horses there, brother? We're gonna get to that because I'm gonna, I'm gonna, okay. I'm gonna. We're, this is all about enlightening people to Larry Taylor because I mean, people will compartmentalize and just say John Mayall or. And by the way, you also. Uh, you also collaborated with Lagos on Baby Batter, which is another one of my favorite records. Yeah, well, that's with Harvey's records, yeah, cause, exactly. because Harvey, Harvey wanted to, to have a little bit more of that R&B-ish jazz feel behind his stuff and not so much straight rock and roll. And Paul was really good at that, too. But he was he was really hardcore jazz. He really was. And he was great. He was really good at it. Did you guys sync he, up? He, uh, yeah, go ahead. You know, he just really had a really uh, unique way of playing drums. He was he was totally all by himself, as far as I, I can remember. And I think, additionally, he really was proud of that, too, right? I mean, it seems to me that your general... Yeah, 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 yeah he, he was. He, he was really into it, and he was sort of frowned on commerciality, and, you know, he sort of frowned on it. But he did, do, he did play on some... A few uh, Liberty records. I think he played drums on uh, one of Jackie D. Shannon's records. I can't think of the name. Oh, of it. we need. I need to get the Lagos. Disc- he. Did, what about just like? He, did he play any on any jazz sessions? I mean, I know he was friends with those cats, but I mean, all like Lagos to me. Oh no, he was in a band called. Um, uh, uh, Skip told me what it was. Uh, uh, kaleidoscope. Well, pure food. Kale- pure food and no, no, yeah. kaleidoscope. Kaleidoscope. Oh, Kaleidoscope. Yeah, they were they were like an avant-garde, uh, you know, odd time, odd measure, uh, kind of like East Eastern music. Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, 
what you'd call a more, you know, Mideastern, more European, uh, you know, folk, you know, that kind of, that kind of stuff. <laughs> Tell me, going back for a minute, can you paint the picture for me and my own peace of mind about the Shaky Jake session? Because I'm going to send you, I, I, I want to send you this record. It is the funkiest record. It, it, and then I, when I saw that you were playing on it, it really, it, it just, it gets me off every time, man. Can you paint me a picture of that? Well, you know, I'll tell you what, I think I have a copy of that someplace. Well, you better listen yeah. to it because it's hot, man. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, i tell you what's funny about that, to be honest with you. I, I wasn't, you know, I was tuned into blues at that particular time, but then I was kind of coming out of the Can He, you know, more of a garage bandy. Absolutely. I always call Can He as kind of a garage bandy thing, but you had guys that had played a lot of clubs like Henry, and but Bob never did, and Alan never did. It was just me and Henry. Uh, and then the original drummer, Frank Cook, he was sort of a jazzer drummer too, but... And he, but he didn't really play a lot of gigs like say, like me and Henry did. See, me and Henry played a lot of, a lot of gigs with a lot of different people over, you know, before that all. And uh, and then after I came out of that, then I went with John Mayo, and I, I haven't really tuned really into the more old older style blues until later, till the seventies. That record was in seventy two or seventy seventy. That was yeah. That was nineteen. Yeah, that was that was that was like like a generic blues feel. Exactly. I, I call. It. No, I mean, but you made it. But it wasn't boring though. It was swinging. Well, yeah, it was well, so it, swinging. It just, it, it just see that thing about sometimes those kind of records like that. They just sort of kind of happen, and that's what you get that character of that. You know, you don't. If you're thinking too much about things and then, you know, and you know a little bit about it, sometimes that's harder to pull off, you know. Oh, and, and we are we are a much more internal thinking society today than we were when you were coming up, um, in my mind. Are there other, I mean, right. you clearly, you have a discography here. Uh, I wanted to ask you also about, um, I found this record in a thrift store, uh, this 1967, I look at it, and Larry Taylor on upright bass, Test patterns, voice and heart. Does that ring a bell? What? What's the song? What's the song called? It, it, the name of the album is called Test Patterns, and the and the and the leaders oh, were voice and heart. I, I didn't play upright bass on that. I played electric. Electric. Bass. Okay, so you put, but you played on that album. Yeah. Who Who are those cats? I don't even know who they. I, well, I just. Well, that, on, that, that, that's how I. That's how I got introduced to the monkeys. You know about that? No, please, please break that down. Okay, well, so I was okay. Here's here it is. I was working with an artist out of New York in Vegas in '61, '62, and '63. Uh, early, late, maybe early '62 to '64. All again, we worked. I worked at Circuit in Vegas, uh, and Bobby Hart was a singer, and he came and this this, this Teddy Randazzo. Okay, first of all, it was Teddy Randazzo was the artist and through the channels with another trio that I played with at the Sea Witch later on through those channels Don Costa the famous famous arranger that actually did stuff with the Sinatra he loved Jerry's guitar playing and Jerry's guitar was more like kind of this country uh, finger picking style with kind of uh, Louisiana's guitars from Louisiana so I was in a trio with them for many years and that's how I got hooked up uh, through that channel. We got the gig with Teddy, and then Bobby Hart came in as a singer, as a back. We had he had three background singers, and he, and he came in as a background singer, and that's how I met him. And then one thing led to another, and then we had a little band, and we went on the road with the Monkeys. We we played on the Monkey hits. I played on 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 on, uh, on the Monkey hit called. Called Last Train to Clarksville. Did you ever hear that record? No, I mean this is way. This is outside of my pocket of, of Larry. Uh, keep going. I love this. Keep going. Yeah. So, so the so Monkeys was. Uh, I don't know if you ever watched the Monkeys. Uh, you know, on TV they have the reruns. Of, there's a thing called the Monkeys theme. Well, I'm playing bass on that one. Mm. And then I played on their. I played on almost their whole first album. And that those are the, that's actually the album that had the biggest sales and all this and that and the other thing. 
And that's how I got hooked up was through Teddy Randazzo, through Don Costa, from the Sea Witch to to uh, the Monkees. And then after the Monkees, that, that done after that was done, I was just kind of drifting around, and that's how I found Cam Heat. Talking to Larry Taylor here on the Jake Feinberg Show. Um, you, uh, can you, part of my show, one of the four L's on my show is, is, is life. And what I mean by that is um, overcoming adversity. And I just, I'd like you to talk about a time in your career, if you had one, when you were fighting it, fighting yourself, or maybe there was a genre that you were struggling with and how, um, or people you were struggling with, and then how you overcame it and actually became stronger as a person and, and as a player. Uh, I'm not sure of the question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's very good. That's a good. That's good. All right. So um, I like to talk to the guys, the art, guys and girls, uh, the artists about overcoming adversity. And so I'm asking you about a time in your career where you were facing some adversity. It could be in any form. How you overcame it and how it made you stronger. Hmm. I gotta think about the adversity. Uh, All right, so think about it, and then I'll. I got. I got some more stuff, um, so you can think about. Yeah, that. I, I, I have to think about the adversity because I, I never thought of anything like that. <laughs> well, that's the Jake Feinberg show. I mean, I'm asking you things you've never thought about before. <laughs> no, I never. No, I never. I never thought about adversity. Adversity. Uh, at all, I didn't. You know, I didn't even know what the fucking word meant, man. Right. Oh, no, and, and 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 in truth, it's like. But I know what the word means now, but I didn't then, and I didn't even think about it. Sure. Well, I mean, like for instance, like Steve Gadd, the drummer. When I interviewed him, uh, he knew exactly what I was talking about, and he went right to the idea that he was so addicted to drugs that he lost, basically, almost gave lost everything, and had to leave New York City, and had to sober up. And it was painful. And when he came back, he had friends in the business. And thankfully, his career is, and he's still alive and he's still swinging. That was one type of adversity. Ron Tut, Ron Tut the drummer, uh, uh, I asked him specifically about adversity. And he talked about being humbled when reggae music first came out. He was infatuated with it, but he could not get the rhythms down. And so he really needed to go. He happened to be in a warehouse in Texas. And he, and there was they were it was a wholesale record distribution fat place and they were they had all these heptone records all these reggae records when they first came into the states i know you know this um and uh he couldn't he had to go he was humbled by that genre of music so he overcame that and eventually became a great very accomplished player could play all sorts boogie on reggae well, that's not a reggae tune but uh you know harder they come the harder they fall so it, it could you know when i say adversity it's more about um fighting yourself in some way shape or form and then ultimately you're still here with both feet on the ground on this earth and so you've clearly be yeah i got you i got yeah, you yeah so if uh, you, you know i mean if you think yeah. of something please chalk it up because it's always yeah i'd have to think about that because it doesn't really it doesn't really register right off well you know i mean it, it and uh based on when, when you hear your bass playing you sound like a very uh I mean, it sounds like adversity just, you know, just fall, just drips off of you. You know, it's not a big deal. But um, <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> okay, but here's the. This is the. Uh, this is where Jake Feinberg show. After five years of woodshedding, uh, promoting concerts, uh, I hosted a concert for Peter Rowan. Uh, maybe two years. Oh, ago. I know Peter. Oh yeah. Oh, well, no, we're. I want the whole story because we're sitting there. We're talking about. Old and in the way, the great bluegrass band, and then we we pivot out to this band called Mule Skinner, uh, and right. and David Grisman. I I had an opportunity to sit with David in his hotel room in October, and did my third hour long interview with David. Um, Peter and I, uh, uh, he crashed on my couch. Um, we're sitting there in the studio doing this interview two years ago before his performance at a church in Southern Arizona, and he tells me. And this is right around the time that I started listening to the Devil's Harmonica with Larry Taylor on bass, Shaky Jake album. And he goes, he goes, you know, Larry Taylor played on that Mule Skinner album. I said, are you effing kidding me? He said, there, he goes, Larry Taylor was the bass player in Mule Skinner. I don't have the audio queued up, but he said that, with, he, I forget the exact wording, but he said, you were 
too bluesy and funky, and they were looking for more grass, more straight bluegrass. So ultimately, John. Yeah, right. Exactly. All right but please, how? Okay, so I was assuming that you were, you'd never worked in New York, but I assumed that maybe you had connected with Rowan when they were doing Earth Opera in New York City. But now I need to know how did you meet the Mule Skinner boys? Because I've done, I've interviewed all those cats. Richard Green. Richard. Green, you and Richard did when you meet him at the uh, at the uh, Ashgrove with Scotty Stoneman. Yes, yeah. Um, please tell me this story, Larry. This is—I mean, I, I'm—I'll be set for life after this. Well, I, I was rehearsing with Richard Green on a on a contemporary record for Warner Brothers. It was kind of a, 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 a more of a modern approach to sort of like fusion. It was an earlier, more of an earlier fusion. Paul Lagos played drums. He was playing drums. And we rehearsed at Paul's house for a year. Oh my God! We put together, oh we put together all this music, and and, and Richard got a deal with Warner Brothers, and they finally released the record. Well, no, no, they finally put the record. They mastered all the tapes, got it all ready, and then they scrapped it. <laughs> was it called? Was it called Richard Green in the Zone? Yeah, the Richard Green. I've been zone, looking for. That, tell me, you have a copy of that record? I need that record. I need that record. No, there's no record. There isn't, right? No, Rowan, no Rowan, Rowan said there was, though. Rowan said there was a record. Oh, no, I, I've never seen it. I oh, my never, God. Well, you know, make, there might have been some pressings, but that's about it. I, I honestly, I, I'm, you know, he, he may be right. And also, well, one of the things I can tell you that he told you, I did not play on that record, Mulesian. I played with the band live. That's all I ever did. He said, now, okay, so this is really fascinating. Are you positive? Because he said that a couple of tracks is definitely you on oh, the that, bass. Oh, that's possible. I mean, I did play on a couple of tracks. I, I don't remember. So, Richard, and yeah. are you telling me that the zone was made up of Richard Green, Lagos, Paul Lagos, oh, Paul Lagos and, and Larry Taylor? Taylor. Uh, I'm trying to think who else was there. Uh, oh, my God. This is my, blowing my... Mainly us three, and then... There was a singer named Richie Martin. You know who Richie Martin was? You know who he is? No, I don't know who he is. Well, Richie Martin was uh, was a singer that, that replaced uh, the the singer in the what the fuck is that pop band's name, man? Uh, <laughs> I was talking to the wrong guy. Yeah, no, I know, I know, <laughs> but I'm just trying to kind of get put, put this in perspective so you you can hear this guy was had just a really good rhythm and blues, had a really strong voice and. So Richard wanted to have this kind of fusion thing with these odd time signatures with this kind of funky scene. I love that this. Tell, oh my! Huh? I love you. I mean, tell me how com were you comfortable in that setting? You 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 talk about Lagos being an odd time jazzer, but you fit in just fine. I I was learning, man. I learned from that stuff. You know, that's something that you play every day and you learn. I learned from everything. And I, I guess what I guess what I want you to in, jazz. yeah go ahead. You know, it's not just playing blues or playing jazz or playing rock and roll. There's there's so much music, and you can learn something from everything. Now, say you, for instance, you were talking about reggae, reggae. I never ever had any idea of, of how to play that, <laughs> and I and I never wanted to. Right. I didn't. It didn't interest me. But some people. You know, everybody's different. Everybody's got, you know, I want to do that. I want to, like, this, what, what's that drummer's name again? He said, you told me about him. Say again? What was his drummer's name? He told me about that. Went and learned all the... All the oh, Ron, Ron Tut. Ron Tut. Oh, Ron Tut. Oh, wow. Didn't Ron Tut play with Elvis? You're darn right he did. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Ron, no, Ron, no, Ron Tut, I mean, yeah. So, but, but I think I think you weren't... You, it wasn't a natural inclination. You weren't interested in it, so you never sought it out. You never wanted to. No, know? I never did. I, I never. Well, I did a I did a, a song with Tom Waits. You know, you know who Tom Waits is, right? Yeah, very well. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so I played on a lot of his records, like nine, eight or nine. Oh, I know. It's insane. And and uh, he had this one tune that was sort of reggae feel, and it was me and him and. Uh, the guitarist, I uh, can't think of what his name is right now. And there wasn't really any drums, because he didn't really use drummers. He was just kid on drums. He used, he used, you know, different forms of percussion, but he never really used, like, a real drummer guy right. in the studio. He always did layers and, you know, laid down tracks with two, three instruments or two instruments and added stuff. 
And, uh, what the heck was his name? <laughs> but there was a reggae tune on there and, and, uh, uh, a feel. I played what I, I played what I heard. You know, I played what I thought. <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't what it was, but I did it. I did it. I tried to emulate the feel of what I thought it was, but it wasn't really what it was. See what I'm saying? Um, and that's kind of like how I approach yeah. it, man. I approach music myself, to be honest with you, my own way. I don't think, I don't listen to everybody and try to do what they do. You see, I just do what I do when I do it. I just, it just happens. It's not something, you know, that I sit around thinking about. It's just, I go to a session. I'm getting ready to do an album with Leo Cosby pretty soon. I mean, you know, I made a record with him once before. You know about that. Right? I mean, it's my fav. I don't listen to any cocky except with Lagos and, and Larry Taylor. That one Mudlark. Yeah, I'm, getting, I'm getting ready to do a record. Oh with my! Oh my years. god! Oh my god! Upright, upright bass and, and acoustic. That's it. Are you? Are we going to get a chance to see the upright bass with Can Heat? No. <laughs> <laughs> You know, actually, at one point, we did carry it. We did use it. But uh, it's just, you know, the way things are today, trying to travel, and then it's, it's this four-piece, uh, this little four-piece thing we have, it's, like, it's interchangeable. We, you know, we're a bass player. He's a really good bass player and a really good musician. He uh, sings a little, and he plays he plays really good bass. So when I'm playing guitar, i got a great bass player behind Oh, gotta that, have, yeah. you know, man. To any 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 music, if you don't have a good bass player, you can forget it. That's all I can tell you. Oh, I dig, and I, you know, yeah. Well, no, if it, you ain't got a guy that has a sense of what the bass is, and you have a guy up there playing all these fucking notes, and you're trying to play with that, forget it. It, it doesn't work. <laughs> you know. Did you? So, did you? Uh, I'm getting emotional. Well, I, and listen, I, I'm, I, you haven't, yeah, because you've made me emotional for two years and you don't even know who I am. So here's the thing. And I'm half your age. So here's the thing. Um, yeah. Tell me about, just before we wrap up part one here, tell me about how you felt in those live bluegrass settings because you were talking before how you play rock and rock. I was and, scared shitless. But how do okay, so then but but then put it into your mentality about just not thinking and just playing what you feel, but then also letting your instincts take over and your chops. Well yeah, yeah. My, the, the, I, I played my feel and it every, evidently it wasn't it didn't gel with what the other players and they had all these top people. You know, Clarence White. You've heard of Clarence White? Yeah, the Kentucky Colonels. I, yeah, this is more my yeah, pocket. Yeah. yeah, Roland White. Roland White. And, and uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Rowan singing and Richard playing violin. And then uh, Bill Keith on, on banjo. I mean, these are all guys that are, you know, and here I am because I'm with Richard. So Richard figures, well, let me get, you know, play some bluegrass <laughs> and you'll get you the gig with the upright bass. Can you just talk? I, yeah, no, I was playing upright bass at the time. Uh, you know that 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 was kind of like in the beginning when I was first playing upright. But Richard uh, thought, well, you know, if you play upright, you know, why don't you just come in here and play with us? And we got these gigs at the Ash Grove, and then I think I might have did recording a couple songs. I don't remember. Oh, I know you. I got the audio. I'm going to send you the whole interview, the Rowan interview, because he talks about you, and I blew my mind. But I think it's like, wow. yeah, no, it's so cool. I mean, you have no. We've just begun to. But I wanted you just to, before we go, you talked about, because I think, like, Richard played, uh, and David Grisman, Rowan, they had already played, I mean, when I interviewed yeah, Richard. David, David Grisman was also in Of course. No, I mean, uh, we're talking about musical titans, but I know what Richard. That's what I'm about. No, but, but, I mean, but, I, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. Richard Green, they weren't going to break any new ground bringing in, you know, some guy who could play bluegrass bass. I know he believed that by bringing in you more rugged, hard-edged blues bass bass that it would be well, a new... Well, I, I, I kind of think that's what Richard thought. I, I know that's guys. what they thought. I know it because I've yeah, documented yeah, this yeah, stuff. The rest are, I don't know about the rest of the guys. I don't know what they thought. But well, all, they all, I know yeah. is, all I know is they said I, my time wasn't right. No, and I'm going to send you this audio because Peter said you were too bluesy, not enough straight grass. Vassar wanted yeah, straight. Yeah, yeah, I didn't play straight. I played I played what I heard right there on the spot. I, you know, I, I tried playing that kind of music. You know, what's funny is my, my first music I was introduced to was in Tennessee when uh, I lived in Tennessee when I was a kid. And then I actually ended up going back to when I was about 12. My brother lived there and... Uh, 
I just kind of music uh, he was playing. He was in a bluegrass group, and he also was in a rock and roll rockabilly band at that time in the fifties. And my my first introduction to music when I was a kid, when I was a kid, like six, seven, what five, six, seven years, eight years old. That's the music that they, that's the kind of music you heard around that area. Was it was in East Tennessee. So I I was real I was real uh, uh, interested in bluegrass music, but I, I you know. I never really was around the environment, you know, and so uh, not 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 when I played music. So I, I never really, you know, did that. I just kind of evolved into playing blues because that's kind because I was a jazz fan and blues fan. So, well, um, I have a favor to ask you um, when you come to town. Uh, I'm going to go to the show, but you know, it's a harried evening and. I'm, we may or may not connect. Um, can I get can I get you into the studio Saturday morning for part? Not Saturday morning. Saturday for part two live. I want to hang. I'll pick you up at the hotel, and we'll hang for part two. We got a lot more to do, but this time we can do it in person. Well, yeah. I mean, I could say yes right now. My wife's coming with me, so we wanted to kind of like spend a little time doing some little. You know, pups in there. This is—I'm just saying. Like, I, I, you can totally do. I'm, I don't want to interrupt your day. I just want to say that you and your your wife can come to the studio too. But I want to—I I, part. Listen, I'll be—it's—it's it's ten days before my thirty-eighth birthday. Um, I, you know, Skip told me he doubted I'd get more than ten minutes out of you. We've already been cooking for an hour, so. Well, because you got because you have interesting things to talk about. That's issue. Exactly. No, and, and, and I and I and I like to. Uh, so anyway, mull on it for a minute, and I'd love to do. I mean, we'll do part two anyway. But I really, I'd love to meet you. Uh, I'd love to connect with you in person. And and if you're up mm-hmm. for it on that Saturday, you want to come in for a half. Well, I'm up for it. Let's see. Let's see. Let's just play it by ear and see. Uh, now you're talking about Saturday. Uh, you talking about the day we get there. The day you're, no, you're talking. So we're talking about. Uh, we're talking about uh, can he? You're playing on Friday the fourth, and right. then my my live worldwide show is on Saturday from noon to two. I have Indugu Chancellor in the second hour, and I want to have you. What, what wait a minute? What date is that? That's the fifth Saturday the fifth. Yeah, we're going. We're going to Phoenix. You're playing. You're playing a gig in Phoenix. Yeah, we're doing the festival there. Oh, that's awesome! When are you coming in? By the way. We're coming in on the third. All right. Well, me listen. Then, then let's figure out a way to meet up. Maybe we can just do uh, part two in person. You know, somewhere before, and then obviously you're going to be out of here on Saturday. Um, yeah. Well, that, well, no. Well, I think what's going to happen is that uh, we'll have to get up pretty early on the morning, the fifth, and drive to uh, Phoenix. Absolutely. So maybe on the third before the or I don't know. So well, on the third we get in. I don't know what time the flight is. I think we get in. Sometime in the afternoon, and then that's when me and my wife wanted to. Oh yeah, then Skip's having a party. <laughs> yeah, well maybe I'll, I want to come over to the party. We'll have either way. I want to meet you, Larry, because I, I know this. You know. Oh yeah, well come on over. Come come there, and maybe we can do a little bit of talking there. If you have to, if you, you have a recorder to bring. I, no, I, I totally have a recorder, and to me, I mean. What you don't really understand, because you're not really into new media, uh, is that at, I've become a prolific disseminator of stories uh, through all the musicians, all the guys I've interviewed, and uh, you know, I you, you. yeah, and you know what, man, like it's it's feeding me. Um, it's it's. Uh, I think my daughters, really? my, my wife, kind of look askance at me sometimes, but it's because I mean, I two years ago this dream started, and now my dream is complete to talk to you, man. Wow. And, so. Uh, keeps, Great, man. Yeah, man. You know, so we'll, uh, you know, we'll, I'll see you at Skip's house, and we'll hang for a minute. Yeah, that's probably good. And then we'll go from there. Maybe we can do something early the next day. Uh, well, yeah, no, I was gonna. I'm gonna come to the show. I just don't want to. You know, I want to stay out of your hair. Um, but but ultimately, yeah. um, you know, I chronicle you guys, your brotherhood, because in my mind, if if the continuation of the language of music is going to continue, I believe it's been stunted. The only way it's going to continue is because of cats like you and and fido and and all the other ridiculous cats that i've interviewed because you guys were masters of all trades even though you probably don't do, do, do you know about the little do you know about the little short little window in there with jerry lee lewis you know about that one? Oh, let's get to that in part two
Okay, well, yeah, there's a little, there's a little. Oh no, we we just scratched. Listen, there. I just was throwing all. I threw my best stuff at you today, and so, yeah, yeah, that was good. You did some good things. Good, <laughs> no, that was good. You did some good, good. I mean, there's a story. There's a real story here with me for sure. Well, I can tell you, you better believe. Listen, man. Everybody's going. Why don't you do a book? And why don't you do all this shit? I mean, I I don't have to do that stuff. I just play music, man. That's what I do. You know. And then you got to get a guy that's a writer, and you got to get a publisher, and you, you know, I mean, Cito did a book. I mean, whatever, you know. Larry, there, Larry, I, had, it's it, he had somebody to write with him. He had some people from the L.A. Times that actually took interest and put help him put it together, you know. But I, I could never do it on my own if I didn't. Well, we just started this first step here, man. And it, what, what an honor to connect with you. Thank you to Skip Taylor for uh, connecting us. And, and this is going to run. I'll send you some information when this is going to lo- run worldwide. Uh, the twenty seventh. Are you going to? Are you going to? Are you going to edit it? Absolutely. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm going to send you a. I'm going to. I'm going to send you a complete. Yeah, I got to take out some of the f bombs. But but. Do that again. I got to take out some. I got to take out some of the curse words. But yeah, other than that, we're. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. I'll send you listen. I'll send you a full audio file tonight via email, and uh, if any, there's anything you want okay. me to take out, you let me know. We'll just stay in touch, man. Yes. Okay. Do you have a, Do you have my email? I have sent you like five emails and and gotten no response. Oh yeah, I do. Yeah, you got my email. Yeah, I never I never got back to you, but I I knew that it was coming. I didn't know when. Yeah, because you you, you didn't you, you thought this was just going to be a fluff interview. All right. So now you can respond. No, I mean, yeah, I'll tell you what. I, I think all interviews usually are that. That's all I can tell you because I, I don't like them. How did this one go? Oh, this one's like this one of the best ones I've ever done. My my job is done. All right, LT. I'll because talk. You because you because you had facts and information, man. Most people, you know, although you started off with this New York thing, I said, wait, man. <laughs> <laughs> that's the that's the only one, I and mean, that's really the only thing that I read off the bat. But everything else. Was really right on it. Yeah, know? and you know what, man? Like, like you know, in in a in a song, you play wrong, one wrong note, but it's a gateway to further creation. So you know, everyone right, flips, flips right, a note. The more wrong notes, and that's right. That's yeah. like, that's right. You know, the mistakes is where you learn from. You can play. You, you know, it's like any kind of media, like medium, like photography. You know, you go shoot a bunch of pictures, and you you get two or three good ones, and every now and then you hit something like, "Wow, what's that?" That's exactly. You never did. So it's all the same. And music's like that too. Uh, it's funny how that is. It just sometimes it just things just happen, you know. You know, I'm I'm not I'm not real I'm not real keen on everything I've done, but I like some of the stuff. I've all right, LT. Well, well, make sure you throw on that Shaky Jake record today, all right? Because that thing but, burns. But, but, okay, well, just remember this one thing, and sure. I'll tell you one more thing before I go. My outlook on music is in the wind, man. I play it, it's gone in the wind. I don't like to listen to myself. I just like to do it, create it on the spot, and then next, here, something else comes along, and you do that then. See what I'm saying? I don't know if that means anything. Um, no, actually, that's exactly my mantra. Every time I get behind the mic on the radio, just swing. And I rarely, I don't listen. I mean, I'll go back and transcribe stories that you guys talk about, but I don't like to yeah. necessarily listen to how I set the stuff up. And I cringe sometimes. So I'm the yeah, same way. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, that's there right. That's the same thing. That's right. Same exactly. Thing. No difference. Anyway, listen, I'll let you go. I got to go. And yeah. uh, it was really good. It was great. Now, your name is what again, Ron? <laughs> my name is Jake Feinberg. Oh, J- Jake? Jake, yes. Jake Feinberg. J-A-K-E? J-A-K-E, Feinberg, Jewish okay, father. Jake, I'm yeah. sorry, man. I, for some reason, not done. Okay, I'll remember you now because now I find, it takes me a minute, man. I have to, you know, I got to. Oh, it's okay. No, just Jake respond. No, stay in touch via email. I, I, I want, and then we'll uh, we'll figure out a way to, to keep this thing going because there is a story there. Yeah, right? well, you know, you're going to be, be at Skips, right? I'm hoping to get over there. Um, I mean, just we'll coordinate something. We'll figure it out. I, I want to make it so that okay, you're okay. A... Well, you know, okay. So you just find me and we'll figure it out. All right, brother man. Okay, take care, man. Be Thanks good, Tim. Good to good to hear you. Bye-bye. Bye bye. This is the Jake Feinberg Show. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.